Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you would, get your Bibles out. Open them up to Luke, the 16th chapter. Luke chapter 16, that's where I'm looking at. And in fact, that's where my Bible's going to be for the entirety of the lesson this evening. So if you get cranked over to Luke chapter 16, we'll just work right there at the top of that chapter for these next few minutes. It is great to see everybody tonight. What a just beautiful, beautiful day that the Lord has blessed us with to be able to enjoy. And I am uh, so very glad that I've been able to share at least a few hours of this day with my brothers and my sisters in Christ doing uh, the things that certainly do my soul good. And I hope your soul has been done good as well today by being here together, being in the assembly this morning and being here again uh, this evening to worship God and to edify each other. I'm so thankful for your presence here tonight. As you can see on the screen behind me, tonight is Q&A night. And the question, just one question this evening, the question that I've been uh, presented with this evening is actually a textual question. And it was brought to me by someone who last year was doing their daily Bible reading. In fact, I got this question several months ago and I'm just now getting around to it. But they were doing their daily Bible reading in the 2020 schedule that we were following and they came to this passage in Luke the 16th chapter where Jesus tells a rather perplexing parable, if you will. It is sometimes referred to as the parable of the unjust steward. Maybe your Bible has a heading in it that describes it as the parable of the dishonest manager. Whatever you want to call it, this parable is not the easiest for everybody to understand. You know, in Luke the 15th chapter, in the previous chapter, Jesus tells some lost and found parables. He tells the parable most famously of the prodigal son. and We read that story in... Well, well, yeah, of course, that's pretty easy to understand. Everybody gets the main point from that. Or Jesus tells in Luke the 10th chapter, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And again, we read that and it's like, yeah, piece of cake, there's no problem. I get the moral of that story. But this one here in Luke chapter 16, eh, it takes a little bit more work. And what's particularly perplexing is the fact that the main character in this parable is rather shady and underhanded. And Jesus seems to be commending him. What in the world is up with that? Is Jesus commending a bad man? And what exactly is the takeaway of the parable of the dishonest manager? You know, if the preacher gets up and says, this morning I'm going to be preaching on the parable of the ten virgins. Well, everybody just already knows what the main takeaway of the sermon is going to be. Be ready for the coming of the Lord. Or if I get up and I preach this evening on the parable of the unforgiving servant, everybody knows what's the point of that sermon. It is to be forgiving. But if I get up and say, I'm going to preach on the parable of the unjust steward, the dishonest manager, what's the main takeaway from that? Everybody just kind of looks around at each other and scratches their head and says, I'm not entirely sure. And so I think for those reasons and others, it would do us good to just get acquainted with this parable because I believe that when we do come to understand its teaching, it really packs a powerful punch. In fact, it makes a point that Jesus really doesn't make really anywhere else in His teaching. And I think this parable really challenges us. It motivates us to think about our service in the kingdom. That's one of the reasons I paired it with this morning's sermon. It gets us to think about our service in the kingdom and how we steward the resources that God has given to each one of us. And so with all of that introductory stuff out of the way, let's just read this parable together. In Luke chapter 16, let's just break it down and we'll talk about it as we work along here. In Luke chapter 16, let's read together beginning in verse 1. Jesus said to His disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager... 
And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And so he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am too ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. And so, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And so he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And so he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. Verse 8, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Verse 10 now. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, as is always helpful, and is usually the case, let's just begin by just getting a feel for the context of the parable and the teaching here. You know, Jesus did not tell parables just in a, in a vacuum. No, Jesus always told a parable in a specific setting and to a specific audience of people. And we need to understand about the setting and the audience and what's going on here. First of all, I want you to notice that this teaching, it is directed pretty much explicitly to the disciples. Verse 1, He said this to the disciples. Now, you'll remember back in chapter 15, Jesus told those lost and found parables to who? He told those to the scribes and to the Pharisees, chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. And in fact, when we get down to verse 14 of this chapter, Jesus is going to turn His attention right back to the Pharisees. He's going to start saying some stuff to them once again. But right here for these 13 verses, kind of in the middle of those, this seems to be addressed specifically to Jesus' followers. And I do believe that kind of the driving element in this parable is money. And that really should come as no surprise to us if we're familiar with the Gospel of Luke. Because Luke's gospel very much is a lot about money. Nearly all of Jesus' sayings and teachings about money are found in the gospel of Luke. There is, for example, the parable of the rich young fool in chapter 12. If you do drop down here in our chapter, look in verse 14. When Jesus gets ready to address these Pharisees again, Luke tells us there in verse 14 that the Pharisees, they were lovers of money. And that, of course, ends up setting up the teaching that Jesus does on the back half of this chapter, verses 19 through 31, when Jesus tells about that rich man and Lazarus. Here was a guy who did not use his money as he should. Now, we read passages like that, and we're all familiar with those different teachings. We need to be clear, Jesus is not anti-money. Jesus is not against money and teach somehow that money in and of itself is a bad thing. No, in Luke's gospel, once again, we're told that money, money can be a good thing. In chapter 8, that's when we're told about those good women 
who use their money of their own means. They use that to support Jesus and to provide for His needs and the needs of the twelve. In chapter 19, we read about a man, a tax collector, a very wealthy guy who promises to give his money to the poor and to return back those who he had defrauded. That, of course, is the story of Zacchaeus. And so this parable that we come to here in chapter 16, it's couched just kind of right in the middle of all of this teaching about money. That money, yes, can be used for good, but that also there's some warnings about money. There's some things about money that can be problematic. And I think that is a theme here contextually as we consider this parable. Now, of course, whenever we talk about any of the parables that Jesus told, we need to recognize that we are talking about something that His audience needed to be able to understand right then and right there on the spot. You know, we sometimes have a tendency to be just super analytical with the text. And we do that because, well, we have. We have the written, recorded Word. And as a result, we can can dissect. We can pick apart every line, every phrase, and every word. And don't get me wrong, that can be a good thing. It's a good thing to be studious. I like doing lots of that. We do a lot of that on our Wednesday night, in our Wednesday night Bible study. There's a place for that. But we need to remember that these disciples, they are hearing the parable, and they are hearing it being told to them once. They did not have a text of Scripture sitting in front of them. They are hearing that parable in real time, which means that whatever it is that Jesus is trying to communicate in this story, it needs to be easy enough for them to follow, and it needs to be easy enough for them to understand so that they can then make the proper application of the parable in their life. And I say that, I make that point in particular, really to just kind of put us at ease. That really ought to tell us this parable. In fact, none of the parables of Jesus are meant to be complicated. It is not intended to be perplexing or puzzling in any way. Jesus expects that the simple narrative of this parable, that it will be straightforward, and that the ultimate takeaway, the take-home from the parable, it will be clear and understood. And so... What exactly is going on in this story? Well, look at it again. Look at verse 1. What's going on in this story? Who's the the players in the story? Verse 1, we're told there in verse 1, there was a rich man, and he had a manager, and there were charges brought to that rich man that the manager was wasting his possessions. So he calls the manager in and says to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your manager management, for you can no longer be my manager. So what do we got? Well, we got a man who is the manager of, I don't know if it's his master's possessions, maybe he's the manager of his master's business, whatever it is he's in charge of. That's really the idea that he's a steward of. He's been entrusted with the care of some things. But unfortunately, this man has wasted it. Don't know exactly all the details about that, but he's been wasteful in that management. Now, what some people have suggested, really in almost a way to kind of soften the parable, Some have suggested that maybe, well, the man, he's just incompetent. He's just just not a very good worker. just turned out he just just wasn't very good at his job, and he just made some mistakes on the job, and that's why he was wasteful. But I'm not really sure that that's what's going for here. The fact that the text says that charges were brought against him, 
That suggests to me that there's something kind of shady, something duplicitous going on here. Maybe this man is embezzling funds from his, uh, his master. He's doing something else that is dishonest and inappropriate, and as a result, he's getting fired over this. He is getting the boot. You can't manage my affairs anymore, the master says. That then leads to verse 3. The manager then said to himself, "Then what am I supposed to do? My master's taking the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm too ashamed to beg. You know, in some ways, I, I actually, we call this guy the dishonest manager, but at least right here, I, I actually kind of appreciate his honesty. Just kind of just says what it is that he's feeling inside. It's a little bit shameful that this guy actually thinks that he can't get out there and dig some ditches. Come on, buddy. Get out there and get a job. Do some manual labor. There's stuff that you can do. And as well, it seems like he's got some pride issues that prevent him from asking others for some help and being charitable to him. And so as a result of being fired from his job, he's fixing to get the axe. He's having to think about what's he going to do. He's having to think about his next step in life. It actually maybe even seems that the master has maybe even given him maybe a, a, you know, a notice himself. Hey, I'm giving you a few days before you're out of here. I'm going to give you a little bit of time so that you can get your affairs in order, get something else lined up so that you can take care of yourself. You need a plan for what you're going to do for a living. Well, after thinking about it for a little bit, that's what verse 4 says. Verse 4, the man says, Aha! I have decided what to do. In fact, the wording there is, I have resolved. I have determined this is what I'm going to do. What's his idea? I've decided that when I am removed from management, people will receive me into their houses. Aha! I know what I'll do. I'm essentially going to become a perpetual house guest. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have others be indebted to me. And so they're going to have to receive me into their homes. That is, I'll do a favor for people so that they'll then have to do a favor for me down the line. And that's an important idea. Because in the New Testament world, reciprocity, that was very important. The expected custom of that day was, if I scratch your back, then you are expected to scratch mine. The question is, where is he going to find some people that he can curry these favors from? Where is he going to be able to kind of build up a clientele list, build up a contact list? Where is he going to find these people that he can do favors for that he can then build up some favors that they'll then owe him in return. Well, he's got a plan. He knows where he can find some people. Verse 5. Verse 5 says, So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and drop it down to fifty. Whoa, hold on now. This guy takes it upon himself to kind of just start going through his master's Rolodex. His master's got all these, these people who are indebted to him. The master obviously is very wealthy. So people come to him and, and they've got all these various debts. He's got this list of names. All these people who owe these debts. He starts going through that list and he says, Hey, I've got the pen. Actually, here. I've got the pen, which means I've got the authority to slash your debt in half. I'm in that kind of position. I'm probably not going to be in this position for very long, but I've still got maybe a day or two to kind of work some stuff out. You owe my master 100? Hey, let's just cut it to 50. 
Drop it to 50. In fact, another guy comes to him. The second example that's given there, verse 7, he said to another, How much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write 80. And so this guy is just, I mean, he's just slashing debts one by one. He's just giving discounts just willy-nilly to all these debtors. And just kind of as a side note here, you maybe are reading there and you're kind of wondering, what's this business of telling them to sit down and write the new amount? Well, contracts in New Testament times, the contracts were kept by the creditor, but the contracts were actually written, the amounts that were owed were actually written down by the debtor. That way you could then say to someone who owed you a sum of money, you could say, hey, this is how much you owe and look, That's your handwriting. You wrote it down. You know, you knew how much you owed me. You wrote it down. This is your own, this is your own pen to paper. And it kind of gets me thinking if maybe this manager, he he knew that. This guy knew what he was doing. He used that custom to his advantage. In fact, if he was ever then called on to, you know, called a task about that by his master, he could kind of just deny any kind of liability about that. Well, look at there, master. That's, that's not my handwriting. I didn't write that on there. That guy, the debtor, he's the one who wrote that on there. And now the master is obligated to honor what's written on the paper. And so he's got all these debtors lined up. I don't think these two are the only ones. I think the implication one by one is that several debtors came to him. And he's just cutting debts left and right without his master's knowledge and presumably without his master's permission. But what he's doing is he is setting himself up for a whole bunch of favors down the line from all these people. I mean, man, somebody cuts all my debts in half. Man, I'm going to be saying... Can I you know, buy you a soda pop or something? Can my wife bake you a cake? Can we do something to just show our gratitude for the good thing that you did for me? In fact, not only that, but this guy is also setting himself up for lots of big favors in return. You should know that these debts that he's cutting here, the amounts that are given there, these are huge debts in New Testament times. These are exorbitant amounts, and he's just slashing left and right. This guy, in many ways, he has worked the system to his advantage. And that is what leads to the statement in this parable that really seems to cause us the most trouble, verse 8. It's that first statement in verse 8 that the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. You know, up through the first seven verses, we expect Jesus to say that the master then confronted the manager and he said, you are a rotten, no-good scallywag. You're a terrible steward. You are a Mr. McCheedy Pants. Get out of here. But that's not what he says. Instead, the master actually commends the dishonest manager. And so we read that verse and we come away thinking, well, what's Jesus saying here? Is Jesus commending this guy for his dishonesty? I mean, it kind of sounds like... Kind of sounds like Jesus is commending this guy for all his lying and cheating and all this conniving. Well, I want you to listen very, very clearly. This is the key to understanding this parable. Jesus is not commending dishonesty. Not by any stretch of the imagination. Do not read this parable and somehow come away thinking, oh, I can tell lies and it'll be okay. Absolutely not. In fact, the master in the parable, he's not even commending this man. The master commends him not for dishonesty. The master commends him for shrewdness. That is, the master realizes that yes, he's been cheated. 
And yes, he's been taken advantage of by this man. But as he thinks about it, he comes to appreciate just how clever this manager was, just how crafty he was, just how shrewd he was to pull this whole thing off. Let me say again, that doesn't mean that he appreciated being cheated. It doesn't mean that he was somehow pleased with the fact that he's lost all this money. But what he recognized was the astutefulness of this man, the resourcefulness of this shifty steward. And so we need to understand, as one writer said, he said there is a world of difference between applauding this man's shrewdness and applauding this man's dishonesty. You can hear maybe the master saying, You know what, buddy? I don't like what you did to me, but you're a pretty sharp cat. i got to give you that. You are pretty, pretty wily. And so just because Jesus in the parable is commending something about this man does not mean that Jesus is commending everything about this man. It's kind of, I kind of compare this to what I think about whenever I see uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. When they come and they, you know, have the, the, the gumption and they have the courage to just go and knock on like every door down the street. And they're ready to talk very boldly and very confidently about their religious beliefs and what they are all about. And I look at that and I think, man, that's, that's something. I mean, I wish I had more of that kind of courage. I wish I had more of that forwardness that they had. Now, does that mean that I'm endorsing Jehovah's Witness doctrine? Absolutely not. I'm not going to endorse everything about that. In fact, I think that's going to lead people astray. It's going to cause people to be lost. But there's something about what they're doing that is to be admired, something that we could learn from that, something that we could adopt from that. And what Jesus is doing in this parable is He is commending a specific aspect of this man. He is commending the shrewdness that this man has for his particular area of concern. And what exactly is this man's area of concern? Well, this man's area of concern is his immediate future. That's all he's thinking about. He's not thinking about God. He's not thinking about sin and righteousness. He's not thinking about eternity. No, he's thinking about now. He's thinking about his physical well-being. He's thinking about having food on the table and having a roof over his head. He's thinking about how can I survive? And so as a result, since that's what is his main area of concern, he then actively does something to ensure his future in that area of concern. And that is precisely why Jesus then says what he says in the last part of verse 8. Would you look at the end of verse 8? Jesus says, for the sons of this world... Now he's bringing it... Now he's bringing, making some, some, some pointed application... For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. There we go. The sons of this world, worldly people, they get after it. They do. Do you know people like that? People who are not Christians, they're not interested in God, but the things that they are interested in, they are full bore. They are pursuing it with all of their heart and their vigor. I'm reminded of a good invitation that Josh Harris did a few weeks ago. That was kind of the idea. These pursuits that we sometimes invest ourselves in in life. And I know worldly people, that's what their life is all about. Whether it's having fun, or whether it's making lots of money, or whether it's building their business and being successful in worldly terms, whether it's having pleasure and hedonism, that's what they think life is all about. So they get after it. And by contrast, what Jesus says is He says, the sons of light, my disciples, us, 
Sometimes we're not nearly as zealous in our area of concern. And what is our area of concern? Our area of concern is the matters of the soul. Spreading Christianity. Living as Christians. uh, Helping to expand the borders of the kingdom. Living right. Pleasing God. Going to heaven. We say... We pay some lip service and we say that yes, that is our main focus in life. But sometimes, sometimes our actions reveal a different story. Sometimes our actions do not actually show that we are getting after it the way the world is getting after their worldly pursuits. We're not always as diligent. We're not always as zealous. We're not always as creative in spreading the cause of Christ. And what Jesus says here in verse 8 is is really rather pointed. Jesus says, I sure wish that my followers would take a note from the people of the world. I wish they would learn a lesson from worldly people that they should be a little bit more shrewd. They should be a little bit more clever. They should be a little bit more wise in this, our area, the most important area of concern. In fact, Jesus does seem to indicate that one of the ways that we can show some of our shrewdness is in how we use our money. That's verse 9. Verse 9, Jesus says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, that is, the, just the money, the wealth of this world, the stuff of this world, so that when it fails, and a day is coming when all the money in the world, it isn't going to be worth nothing, when it fails... They may receive you. You may be received into the eternal dwellings. Jesus is saying, use your stuff. Use your money. Use your resources for the most important thing. Advancing the kingdom of Jesus. And by doing so, you are laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven. I have a good brother of mine preaches down in Florida. And he described this parable. And it's, it's what I always think of when I think about this parable. He described this as being creatively righteous with our wealth. I I love that phrase. Being creatively righteous. You know, the world is creatively uh, unrighteous. Our world is very creative with coming up with new ways to sin, new ways to access sinful content. Our world is thinking outside the box all the time in those areas. We need to be creative when it comes to righteous things, and particularly when it comes to how we use our money. In the article that he wrote about being creatively righteous with our money, he talked about using our money in kind of outside-the-box ways that glorify God, whether that be surprising people with gifts, even if it's not their birthday, or paying for the person behind you in the drive-thru, paying for their food, or whether that's putting together a care package to deliver to a homeless person, thinking outside the kind of the parameters of what we normally think, more than just our weekly obligation that we drop in the collection plate on Sunday. That's important. We need to meet that obligation. But to think more. What's other ways? What's creative ways that I can use my blessings to glorify God? And I think that is the very thing that Jesus is commending in this passage. And I should say, it's not just limited to how we use our money. It's how we use everything that we have. It's how we use our talents. How are we using our time? How are we using our God-given ability? How are we using the resources that we have at our disposal? Are we thinking of ways that we can leverage what we have to the benefit and to the upbuilding of the kingdom? Are we being shrewd? 
You know, that word shrewd, we hear that, and in our mind, it almost sounds like a, like a sinister term. It kind of sounds like a, like a not-so-nice thing to say about somebody. We think about how we are identified as Christians and what we're supposed to be. Okay, I'm supposed to be kind. I'm supposed to be pure. I'm supposed to be holy. But if somebody comes along and says, as a Christian, you're supposed to be shrewd, we might say, whoa, you watch what you're saying to me, buddy. But Jesus says His people do need to be shrewd. We need to be wise and clever. need to be clever in securing our eternal future. Again, that's our area of concern. need to be clever about that. And you know what? If the world is creative and shrewd in securing their physical well-beings, then how much more should we be clever and shrewd in securing our spiritual well-being? In fact, you might even want to, if you're one who writes in your Bibles like this, you might even want to draw a line, draw an arrow from this parable at the top of the chapter all the way down to the bottom of the chapter, verses 19 through 31, that story about the rich man and Lazarus. Because in that story, what you have is you have somebody who's not doing what Jesus says to do here in verse 9. All of that then leads to those summary statements. Let's read them again in verse 10. Jesus says, "...one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much." And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. See how the principle of stewardship, it kind of works positively and also negatively. If then you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, then who's going to entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, then who's going to give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either you'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot... Serve God and money. So Jesus kind of just brings it all home by reminding us that, that everything that we have, not just the amount of dollars in our pocket or in our bank account, but everything that we have, everything that we have ever had in our lives, it's just on loan to us from the Lord. Stuke made those comments this morning as we were thinking about our giving. You know, just like the man in the parable, what are we? We're just stewards. We're just managers. God has entrusted some stuff to us for a little while and the question is, are we managing it wisely? Are we being shrewd about that? Are we using those blessings in order to secure for ourselves the true riches that come in eternity? Jesus says that all the things that we are blessed with, it's placed within our care so that we can use it to serve and glorify God. And since we are stewards, let's be reminded, that does mean that there will come a day of accounting. And that's what happened for this man back up at the beginning of the parable. The master, he did some accounting. He got a report that was brought to him and he went and looked at the books and he came to realize this guy is not a good steward. And the day will come when we will stand before the Lord and the Lord is going to find, He's going to bring before us, He's going to maybe even open up some books and show them to us. Hey, you were not a good steward. Or maybe you were a good steward. Jesus says we need to be ready for that reckoning and whether or not we have been dealing with the Master's things faithfully. And so what exactly is the takeaway from this parable? We've really said it a number of times, but I'll just summarize it here in Luke chapter 16. I think the main takeaway of this parable is that disciples need to be shrewd. And I am putting up there in parentheses that phrase that my brother used, and I'll encourage you to maybe think about that and kind of use that to remember this parable, to be creatively righteous. And especially, if we're keeping things in their context, that's especially true 
when it comes to our material blessings. God's people, I think Jesus is saying God's people need to, need to step up their game a little bit. We do. We need to step it up. We need to be more clever. We need to be more thoughtful when it comes to our area of concern, when it comes to the matters of the soul. How can we demonstrate great wisdom? How can we be more effective with building up the kingdom? In my Bible class this morning, in the high school class, I mentioned use this as an example. You know, I've seen guys before, maybe you have as well, that are the street corner preachers. The guys who stand on street corners, maybe they got a megaphone or they've got big posters up and they're shouting at people saying, Repent! The kingdom of heaven is at hand! Repent or perish! I walked by one one time and he was actually calling people whoremongers right there on the street. And I got to thinking, yeah, he's, he's pretty zealous in what he's doing. He's pretty fired up in his area of concern, but didn't seem very shrewd. Didn't seem very wise in the way he was going about that. You and I need to do better than that. I think we do do better than that. But you know what? Maybe we can do even better than the way that we are doing things. We need to use shrewdness and put our minds to work. You know, I know a guy, and I even almost hesitate to say that he is a Christian, but I know a guy who is very affluent materially, he has worked tooth and nail. I'll certainly give him credit. He has worked tooth and nail to not only establish, but to build up his, his business. And he is very, very successful. He is very, very well off, and he is very, very blessed. And he is very good at what he does. He is so clever when it comes to things like, like marketing his products. He's so good with networking and figuring out how to you know, get in touch with the right people. He's really good with advertising. He knows how to use social media and leverage that in a good way. He's always looking and thinking ahead to what's the next trends in this particular market. He's a brilliant businessman. And I often think about him and I think, man, what, what if he would harness all of that? All that shrewdness, all that cleverness, all that astuteness, all that acumen, all that passion, all that energy... What if he would leverage that for the kingdom of God? In fact, what if he could just bottle some of that up and just pour it over all the rest of us? And we could all then, if he's not going to, we'll put it to use in the service of the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is pushing for in this parable, which means there is a challenge in this parable. In fact, I'll just issue it. This is my challenge to you for this week. Twofold. And it combines this morning's lesson and tonight's lesson. Number one... Think this week of some way that you can serve someone in this local congregation. And then maybe to take that up a notch, number two, think and, and be very deliberate about this. Think about how you can be shrewd in rendering that service. How could you maybe be kind of creatively righteous as you serve others and in so doing serve the Lord? You know, Jesus says in this parable that there are eternal rewards for people who are diligent and shrewd in their service unto God. Let's be those people. Let's be those people who are actively seeking to secure those true riches that are in the eternal dwellings. In just a moment, we are going to stand and we're going to sing the song of invitation number 269, Nothing But the Blood. And as we sing that song, I would just simply ask you, what have you done to secure your eternal future?
The Lord most certainly has done His part. In fact, in many ways, the Lord has done the securing for us in sending Jesus to this world, giving Him as an atoning sacrifice for our sins so that we might be saved. The question is, and this is really kind of what differentiates Christians from non-Christians, and that is Christians are the people who have accepted that wonderful gift. We have responded to it in faith and in obedience. If you've not yet done that this evening, you need to do that. That's the way that you secure your eternal future is by obeying the gospel. If we can help you tonight to confess your faith in Jesus as the Son of God, repent and turn from sin, be baptized in water for the remission of your sins, you can be united with Christ, you will be in Christ, you can be a part of His body and begin serving Him with your passion and your energy and your zeal and your shrewdness for the upbuilding of the kingdom. Can we help somebody tonight to take those critical steps? If you are a Christian, but you've just not, you just, I mean, you've just been laying down on the job, brother or sister, you've not been serving the Lord as we talked about this morning, maybe you just, you just, it just doesn't even occur to you of the various ways in which you can be a servant for God while you live here upon this earth. Repent of that. Turn the corner this evening. If we can pray with you, if we can encourage you, if we can help you in some way to serve the Lord in a better way, then we stand ready to assist you as well. Whatever your need is, you just need to come to the front. You need to make that known. You're here in a room full of people who care about you and love you, and we want to help each other to go to heaven. Let's help each other to do that tonight. Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.